Welcome to Real Life, the program that talks about the life of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond. The people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate with your host, broker associate of Sotheby's International Realty, John Christopher. Hi, this is John Christopher from Real Life, and today I have the chief economist for Brown Harris Stevens, Greg Heim. Hi, Greg. How are you today? Good, John. How are you doing? I'm doing great. What a year it's been, right? Or maybe a year and a half? <laughs> uh, unbelievable. Um, you're mostly focused on the Manhattan market and the boroughs. Um, do you remember how the market was just before the pandemic hit? That would have been like, what, the first quarter of 2020? Yeah, you know, it. Clearly, most areas were starting to show signs of improvement. Out east, was the activity was picking up. Um, we had a very sluggish luxury market in Manhattan. That was starting to pick up. We actually had a very good start to the year in terms of contracts. Um, you know, the stock market was going up. Uh, unemployment was low. You know, it, it was everything looked like it was finally coming together. You know, the prices were adjusted enough that people were buying. Uh, most of the markets we were in had a very good start to the year. Um, and then, you know, the world changed and hasn't changed back yet. Um, but, you know, and, and it's it's been affecting the regions we're in because, you know, we're we're in the Hamptons, obviously, and we're in New York City and we're in Connecticut and Jersey and Palm Beach and Miami. So we've seen all sides of this. Um, you know, what what happened in Manhattan where I don't even know how we closed as many uh, sales as we did when we couldn't have closings in person. Right. Uh, it was sight unseen. It was crazy. Well, you could do virtual, like you could literally FaceTime or Zoom, you know, through your listing and people could see it. I mean, people have always bought new developments off of floor plans, but um, not so much for, for resale apartments or existing homes. And it shows you that we can be a pretty nimble industry when we have to be. And obviously with, with the dense cities having the, the highest you know, number of cases and infection rates, people went to the suburbs, which did wonders for the Hamptons. You know, you guys are still having, you know, numbers you've never seen before in terms of volume and pricing. Um, and I think with the Delta variant, that momentum is going to continue. Um, our Jersey and Connecticut is, is had quarters it's never seen before. Um, and that, that was a market that had been struggling. Are a the little bit. Are they uh, fleeing the city? Is that what the, is they they it? were? But the, the amazing thing is that they weren't necessarily people were fleeing the denser parts of the cities like Manhattan, but a lot of them were going to Brooklyn or or other boroughs. They found, um, you know, they always look at telephone number changes and things like that to kind of track where people are going and moves like U-Haul information, and you know certainly people that had second homes and a lot of people that live in Manhattan have homes in the Hamptons or might have a place in Connecticut or in Palm beach, obviously or Miami. Um, so there's a lot of that, but you know, we, without a big pickup in sales, initially we knew that they weren't leaving, you know, and obviously maybe they didn't want to sell at the worst of the pandemic, but what we've seen now is, are the, the suburban markets have stayed strong. You know, the biggest problem that most areas have, even in the United States now, is they don't have enough homes for sale. Right. And the Hamptons, I think, benefited from that initially, that there was a lot of development over the last, you know, 
five to 10 years in the Hamptons leading up to the pandemic, which led to having a sufficient apply of homes initially for people. And that happened in Connecticut, New Jersey, uh, Long Island, where you know I live in Nassau County, Westchester saw a huge bump. But now all these places now have nothing, you know, or, or you know, seemingly really have diminished. nothing. Yeah, the supply it's, is diminished. It's diminished and, and people, you know, are being priced out in many parts of the country, which is why you may hear that, you know, new home sales and existing home sales are slowing. It does, the demand is still there. It's the supply that's not. Fortunately for us in Manhattan, we have plenty to sell and we have never seen contract sign numbers like we have seen over the past six months. Like it's record levels every week, um, levels we've never seen before. The pent-up demand was so big um, that it's it's been very hard to keep up with everything. That's and, interesting. Uh, you know, yeah. we're still navigating, you know, again, with the Delta variant, still having to, to be aware of all these rules and, and restrictions. And obviously, uh, New York City has passed a new set of restrictions about indoor dining and activities that are going to make it very challenging. Um, and getting people back to work, too. I mean, we we in New York City rely on office workers, people that commute like myself to, for the restaurants and the retail stores and, and the arenas and the shows. And, you know, right now, less than 30 percent of Manhattan office workers are back in their office, even part time. And that's that's presents a real challenge uh, to the city to, and those in businesses to stay afloat during that. So you, you, but you, uh, people are moving back to the city, but what's, what's the driving force now, do you think? I think that, look, everybody that was living in the city or that lives in the Hamptons or wherever they live, pick that place for a reason. People that live in Manhattan will maybe want to be close to work or they want the restaurants or the, the nightlife or whatever it is, just like people that the Hamptons may want the, the beach or the, that didn't change, you know, and COVID hopefully is a temporary thing. Um, it seems it's certainly gone on longer than probably anybody thought, but once there were vaccinations and, and, you know, there was a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, which is a little murkier now, I think people realize like, I don't want to live here. I wanted to live in Manhattan. And like when Sandy happened, everybody said, no one's going to live near the water again. Right. I'm sure you heard that a lot out there. Who's ever going to want to, you know what? People want to live by the water and people want to live near where they work or they want to have mass transit. And I think that's why it's not a surprise that they're coming back. And one of the things you saw in the rest of the country was as soon as restrictions were lifted enough that people could look at homes, everything took off. Because remember, this wasn't your typical, you know, catastrophe. It wasn't your typical recession. When things opened up, people already had record stock prices back. Like, you know, people had money. This wasn't Lehman Brothers. They had money to spend. Maybe they, people joked, I don't know if everybody ever studied this. People got tired of looking at the same walls, you know, where they live when they're trapped <laughs> in your house all day. Right. So it's not a surprise. People that come to New York have a, you know, and I'm sure this is true other places, have a certain attitude that they're not going to be scared, whether it's 9-11, you know, or financial catastrophes or Sandy or, or you know, a fiscal crisis in the 70s or a crime wave in the 80s. They're not going to be scared off. And as soon as they felt it was safe to come back, a lot of them did. Right. So um, are the third quarter stats out yet? No, um, I can tell you that, you know, we're still seeing incredible activity in New York City. It's still 
in most places a record for this time of year. Um, that that will will slow down, just like you know your market couldn't stay that hot forever. Neither could um, Connecticut or Westchester or Nassau, because again, eventually the prices get too high and people will wait. Right. Um, but I, I think, and you know, the thing is, this throws you off your seasonality too, because right now is typically not a busy time. You know, it's Labor Day, you know, the Jewish holidays. It's not a, a peak time of year for activity. But now people have something they haven't had in a while, which you, you guys know about out there, which is the fear of missing out, right? Mm-hmm. So they're not, they don't have time to fence it anymore. Interesting. Now, Eric Adams, the people are saying he's a shoe-in for the mayor, is flying down to Florida to try to woo back uh, some of the guys who pay 50% of the taxes in the city. You think he'll have any luck? Maybe, but I don't think it's really up to him. I think if you look at why people left, like I, my, you know, I always told people that if you left because of COVID, there's a chance you'll come back, right? Because COVID will be contained, hopefully at some point. Correct. Uh, but a lot of people that have fled over the past several years have fled because of tax reasons. And obviously tax reform played a part in that because I'm paying these high state and local taxes. I can't deduct more than 10,000, I don't want to live here anymore. Uh, and so I, I think that's going to be challenging if, you know, since the Democrats are, are in control of everything right now, if they can raise the soil cap, although for a lot of people, they, they really would have to eliminate it, uh, the cap on those deductions, maybe. But I, I think another problem is the city's was has been so mismanaged the last several years uh, that it, you know, I mean, that's Eric Adams has that appeal because he's a former cop and, you know, he, he's, he has really made it a point that he's going to clean up the city. Uh, he's got to do that first, I think, to, to get a lot of people back because the spike in crime, um, you know, New York City got a lot of money, obviously, from the federal government. But it doesn't mean that their budgets are in balance for the next, you know, decade. <laughs> they, they still have fiscal issues to deal with, um, you know, and they've been. All, in particular, in Albany, has been raising taxes on the wealthy for a while now. And, you know, we're going to have a new governor, kind of have a new governor, but we're going to have a new governor um, and a new mayor. I don't think that that attitude is going to change mm. that of taxing the wealthy. So I, I think he's got his work cut out for him. Uh, but, you know, hopefully he'll, he'll have some success. So a lot of those New Yorkers that are down in Florida are going to probably stay there is what you're saying. Well, if you leave for tax reasons, that usually, even if you get the salt deductions back or some or a high level back, um, you're still paying. You know, the, the 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 rates that they're potentially talking about eventually to pay for um, a lot of the stimulus payment at the federal level also comes into it too. If my federal taxes are going to go up, then I'm going to move to a no tax state or or an incredibly low tax state. So it's not only. I mean, Eric Adams can't control New York state taxes or, or federal taxes. Um, and, you know, even on, on the city level, most taxes, they have to get the state to sign on because it, it comes from New York state law. So he can make promises to do this stuff, but he needs the cooperation of a lot of people. And that's always challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Pal, you know him, right? The chair of the Fed. Uh, he's an interesting guy. Uh, he sees. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, if you read my blog, I refer to. Oh, it you have a blog. I didn't know that. Yes, yes. Uh, the line uh, you can sign up on uh, on Brownhurst Stevens' website, bhsusa.com. Uh, I keep making Alfred E. Newman references, although one of the owners of one of the Manhattan companies replied back, "Does anybody under forty know who Alfred E. Newman is?" So my my reply back was, "Does anybody under forty read this?" Um, he said, "But anyway, I'm sorry, I interrupted your question." No, 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 no. <laughs> Well, he's he's saying that the inflation is as he sees it as uh, being temporary. What do you think? I think he's incredibly wrong, and and I'll tell you why. Uh, you know, the great uh, economist Milton Friedman, you know, always tried to to simplify things. And inflation is a monetary phenomenon, so it's too much money chasing too few goods, right? right. So let's look at the too few goods side. We know there are supply and chain issues, like. Try getting microchips. You know, PlayStation Fives came out in November, and I still can't get one. Like that's that's a supply. Well, lumber was in short supply. That's gonna that's gonna go away at some point. There will be enough of everything. But let's look at the money supply. The money supply. Uh, if we look at M two, which is basically what's in your savings and checking accounts and short term CDs and some other things, the money you can spend right now. That since COVID is up over thirty percent. Wow. So there's 30% more money, you know, so even if it was chasing the same amount of goods, now it's fewer goods, but even if it's chasing the same I'm, amount I'm, of goods. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm going to say that uh, when his, his term comes around, that they should be uh, looking for somebody like you. Well, I, I, I would, my uh, testimony in front of, you know, Congress would be hysterical to watch. I bet. I, I tell you how, that. Much. How could somebody? Uh, do you have? Uh, they had some questions. You know, that to, to you. Is there some way that you can reach out to you? Yeah. Um, you know, you can find my information on the Brown Arsenal's website, or you can email uh, G Heim H U Y M at bhsusa.com. If you want to sign up for the blog, uh, you can find that on the Brown Harris Stevens website. It's called the Line, where we talk about inflation a lot and. Employment, interest rates, and, and obviously a lot of real estate. Uh, so, um, if I don't get appointed chairman of the Federal Reserve, um, I'll, I'll keep writing it. But, uh, okay, sounds great, Greg. Thank you so much for being on the program. This is John Christopher for Real Life, and on the only NPR station on Long Island, WLIW eighty-eight point three FM. Stay tuned because we'll be right back after this short break with my next guest. Welcome back to Real Life, and today I have with me author, radio personality, real estate instructor, attorney, and founder of Lieb at Law, and I'm going to throw in also, bon vivant, Andrew Lieb. Andrew, how are you today? I just love that introduction. I can't believe you knew all those things about me. I'm like, I'm taking notes for myself, and I'm going to tell my wife when I get home, these are all my accolades, maybe she'll cook me dinner. Well, she does she like the idea that you're bon vivant? <laughs> she she's when she hears that, like I don't know if you know, in my house I cook all the meals. She's not into that. But <sighs> now that I'm I have that last accolade, I don't see how I don't get a meal tonight. And you can uh, share a cigar with her, right? Well, she won't have it, but I know. <laughs> I'm all about it. 
She'll tell me I, I have to exfumigate before I come back in the house. So oh, I'm maybe sure. she'll I, even yesterday um I had family over. It was my sister's 40th, and um my brother-in-law and I were smoking cigars outside. And we walked in, my mother sprayed us with flavored Lysol. So I'm still a little floral today. <laughs> well, did it help? It probably didn't help though. I, I not for me. Like it made me nauseous. Like Sorry. I like the cigar smell, but she's apparently in the anti-smokers league. So uh. So be it, you know. Anyway, yep. be- before we talk about the the recent changes in the uh, rental law and some of the ambiguities it has created, let's talk just a little bit about you. You come from a family of lawyers, but you have a degree in public. I was going to say public housing, but public policy. I think, right? Is that public health? Actually, it was oh. in the middle of the two. Okay, <laughs> so explain uh, to me what is that? What is the? And you got? Did you get a master's in that? I did, but it's it's probably not something I should be saying in this day and age where people are picketing Fauci. Like it's it's a little scary to say you work in public health, and I'd say that's actually the biggest predicament or um, crime of our time that somehow public health has been made into a negative thing. And you think about New York City, for example. Imagine not being able to have sanitation to get all for lack of a better word, the duty out of the buildings. And so the public health miracles of having clean water and clean air are all around us. And my degree specifically focused on discrimination and education. And I was very interested in making society a healthier place, just like we are today trying to get rid of the COVID virus. So did you at one point think of not uh, becoming an attorney? Um, I don't know that it was a choice. My... (laughs) Great grandfather was an attorney. Right. Either and you follow the, the, the trend or, or forget it. You'd be what, uh, disowned? So I'll, I'll put it like this. Um, I got a master's in public health because I was friends with two of the admissions committee members for my undergrad where I had been a research assistant and a te- teaching assistant. And I got a full ride. They paid me stipends to get my public health degree. I got every benefit. I didn't have to take exams to get admitted. And every day my father would call me up and say, are you going to go to law school already? You're wasting your time and my time getting this public health degree. If you want to learn public health, you can go to the library. And I'm like, guy, they're giving me everything on a silver platter. How do you say no to such? And I went to one of the best programs in the United States in Indiana University. So it was mind blowing to me. But no, I never had a choice but to do law at the end of the day. But they come together. They merged my career. So it's working out. How did that happen? I mean, can you, you know, elucidate us? Yes. My my main field of interest in law is discrimination law, whether it be employment or real estate. That's where I spend most of my time. Now, we have lots of real estate litigation, lots of employment litigation, lots of commercial or contract litigation. But a significant portion is dealing with discrimination in housing and employment. And discrimination stems from my background when I got my public health degree. I worked at the Kinsey Institute. I don't know if you've heard of the Kinsey Institute for Sex, Gender, and Reproduction. I was a nobody, but I worked there and I taught human sexuality on the college level and about anti-discrimination, LGBT rights, and things of the like. So I'm very interested in merging what we learn from the public health in teaching businesses in my corporate compliance work not to have discrimination, couple that with law, and show them why they want to know that, because the ramifications for a discrimination lawsuit are catastrophic to business. All right. Oh, fascinating. That is very fascinating. So let's talk some real estate, okay? 
So sure. the, um, what was the old rental law like before uh, Fred Thiel initiated the, uh, the new legislation? So we have to unwind a while. So let's just go back in time. There's always been regulations when it comes to rentals. Always have been statutes and rules. And when I say always, I imagine the cavemen didn't have it. But it's for a long, long time we've had rules. You probably heard of rent controlled and rent stabilized. Right. Well, back a number of years ago, I want to say it was 2018, but I could be off by a little. Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act came about. And this was like a gigundous law. Huge. Single spaced, 100 pages, something like that. Just overwhelming. And in there, it was buried in there. was, And I think this is what you're getting at. Was there was a provision that said a landlord on residential property cannot collect a deposit or advance of more than one month's rent which means that a landlord couldn't take a seasonal rental, which I think is where you're going, right. of more than one month in advance. All they could take is one month. If they had a three-month rental, one month today, one month next month, one month the month after. And for seasonal areas like the Hamptons, the North Fork, seasonal areas like Hunter Mountain, this has been very problematic because that's not how the rental industry worked. That's the law you're speaking about, correct, John? Exactly, exactly. And so what happened was, Thiel comes around and says, originally when this came out, it doesn't apply to seasonal rentals. And I had a little battle with him, actually. We, I, I, I like the guy. Like, it's not a personal thing. And I said, it doesn't say except for seasonal rentals in the law. And it doesn't say that Hamptons is its own country, although many real estate brokers, those from Sotheby's included, would tell you that we have another state called Peconic. They believe that. Right. And so, uh, you know, when you go to the East End, it's like a different country. But there was no carve out for that. And so recently there was a new law passed. And I want you to know the new bill is called S6877, like Senate Bill 6877. And that was signed into law very, very recently on September 20th. And this law specifically gives an exemption for advanced payments of rent or security for seasonal rentals. And Thiel celebrates this and everyone celebrates this and says, we've solved the problem. But when you read the fine print, you realize they haven't. Well, that's where I was going. My next question is one of the things in the fine print is that uh, the rental has to be registered. And a lot of the towns out here don't have a, a registry. Well, not only does it need to be registered, and so you're you're almost exactly where I would go with this, but what it says, it says the appropriate local government, county, or state registry, it has to be registered, not registered as a rental, not a rental registry, not a rental permit registry, but a seasonal use dwelling. That's the key words here. So we need to have a seasonal use dwelling unit, a seasonal, that's really the key words here again, John. So what I'm concerned about. It says that the local municipality, it uses terms like county or local or seasonal use dwelling unit registry. And as you know, in Southampton, there's no seasonal use dwelling unit registry. In East Hampton, there's none in Riverhead, Shelter Island, in even Southold, none. None of the five eastern towns has a specific registry for a seasonal use. They just have general registries. Yeah, so, and also, if um, if I... You know, correct me if I uh, if I'm wrong on this, but I think isn't the uh, the broker or the agent liable if if it's not registered? Well, I think we're convoluting two different aspects. So let's okay. start off with the first one. Where are we liable from? 
Now, obviously, a broker or salesperson would be responsible for the Department of State for doing untrustworthiness and incompetency as a license violation for helping a landlord sell or rent illegal property. That's an issue. But I think when we're talking about overall, are they responsible? You have to look at the individual registry. So like right now, let's forget seasonal. Let's just say that we rent a place in Southampton, the town, not the villages. If a broker is a part of that, the broker can get a ticket for violating. If broker bad, it's not a good thing. Like East Hampton, the towns, they have their own ways to do it. In this new law, though, it says nothing about the broker. That being said, if you have a fiduciary duty to a landlord, you help the landlord violate something, I imagine the landlord's going to sue you when they get sued. Hmm. That's great. Um, I don't know if you uh, read this. There, uh, there was a landlord, speaking of landlords in Florida, uh, who will not rent or renew a lease if a tenant has not been vaccinated. Now, I know the laws here in, in New York are different than Florida, but could a landlord here do the same thing? And would it be legal? It would 100% be legal to make a policy that tenants need to be vaccinated. That being said, that's not discriminating. It doesn't fall under the guidelines of discrimination. Well, requiring someone to be vaccinated doesn't, um, but requiring someone to be vaccinated without having accommodations available for someone to have a sincerely held religious belief or be disabled handicapped would be falling under the discrimination. So we have to unwind your question. And I think that's really the case. A vaccination policy in and of itself isn't discriminatory. So says the Supreme Court in 1905 in a famous case called Jacobson v. Massachusetts. But whether you have a policy and whether there's an accommodation for someone with a sincerely held religious belief, that could be a violation of the Fair Housing Act, including the free exercise clause in the First Amendment, coupled to the states on the 14th Amendment. Additionally, the dis disability handicap could be the Fair Housing Act, New York State Human Rights Law, et cetera. So you have to be very careful when you're a landlord. Don't just have the policy, have the accommodations available, similar to saying this is a no-pet building, but we allow accommodations for emotional support animals and service animals. Gotcha. Okay. Um, quickly, can you t explain to us, because um, I've had this uh, brought up to me from uh, sellers that uh, on a contract on or about, let's say it's uh, November 30th, uh, could the closing happen in the spring of the following year and explain to us how and why within it's, it's like 30, 30 encyclopedia, seconds. Go. So here, here's the thing. So on or about in the state of New York means that a closing will be subject to a reasonable adjournment. The definition of reasonable is based on the specific facts and circumstances of the seller and the buyer. We don't know that answer right now. There's no standard 30 days. There's a facts and circumstance analysis. So is it theoretically possible in your question that an honor about could end up having a closing in the spring, even if the honor about's close in time? Absolutely. Why? Because it's always subject to reasonable adjournments until either the seller or the buyer unilaterally set what's called a time of the essence closing a law date or a date certain. They can do that through a notice that's clear, unequivocal, and distinct, which sets a reasonable date for the closing. The problem, though, is it has to set a reasonable date, which is a factor-based inquiry for dispute. In plain English, John, if someone's closing on or about November 1st, they're probably closing sometime after, and they need to get ready for that. Gotcha. Great. That was a wonderful answer. Um, Andrew, somebody has uh, more questions for you. How can they get in touch with you? 
I'd say the best way is just to go to my law firm. You can give me a call. You can go on our website, www.lieb8law.com. All of our information's there. It's just Lieb at Law. Put in my name, Andrew Lieb, in any search engine. You'll find me. You also have a book. What's the, the title to that book? Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite. I'm so glad you brought that up. So we have 10 strategies to purchase property post-pandemic, available on Amazon, available at Barnes & Noble. 10 strategies to purchase property post-pandemic. Don't you want to get in on the opportunities? There's opportunities coming. It's time yep. to buy. Fantastic. Andrew, it's always a pleasure. This is John Christopher for Real Life Broadcasting here in the wonderful village of Southampton, New York, on the only NPR station on Long Island, WLIW 88.3 FM. If you'd like to hear this program again or a previous podcast, go to WLIW.org slash radio. Thank you for taking the time to listen and be sure to have an awesome journey. have been listening to Real Life, the program that talks about the people, the places, and the things that are the pulse and heartbeat of real estate in the Hamptons and beyond with host John Christopher, who also created the music for Real Life. WLIWFM's Delaney Hafner and Kyle Lynch provide production support. Thank you for joining us for Real Life right here on listener-supported 88.3 WLIWFM Long Island's only NPR station, which you can also find on your favorite streaming apps and at WLIW.org radio.